Welcome to the North Star Unplugged podcast, brought to you from Bozeman, Montana. Your host is Kristen Rainey, the founder and CEO of North Star Sleep School, providing online and in-person sleep courses to help you get better rest. The North Star Unplugged podcast is about rest and rejuvenation, and it's also about unplugging from technology, transitions, and transformations, and spending time and energy on the things that really matter, which are different for all of us. You can find the audio version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Finally, you can also see all prior episodes on the North Star Sleep School website at www.northstarsleepschool.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to North Star Unplugged. Today, I'm excited to chat with Dr. Christopher Gardner, a nutrition scientist and professor of medicine at Stanford University, where he's spent nearly 30 years studying what to consume and what to avoid for optimal health and how best to motivate individuals to achieve healthy dietary behaviors. He focuses on the intersection of taste, health, environmental sustainability, and social justice in institutional food settings like universities, hospitals, and work sites. Professor Gardner also teaches several food and nutrition classes at Stanford. Christopher, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for being here on your spring break. (laughs) Happy to be here. I think this is going to be a fun conversation. So as we're approaching uh, the end of March 2021, what is the latest at Stanford in terms of in-person versus remote learning? Is anyone actually back on campus? Yeah, actually, for a long time, graduate students have been here. Athletes have been here. Some of the athletes were actually housed in hotels, but came to campus for food. So there have been a lot of mixtures of housing uh, availability. Just this coming quarter, which is going to start next week, junior and senior undergraduates have been invited back. So there was always talk during the pandemic of sort of keeping campus at half staff and having two years of freshman, sophomore, junior, senior here and two off campus. Uh, And they were going to have freshmen and sophomores in this winter quarter that we just finished, but they didn't. They They bailed after the holiday surge and everybody stayed away undergraduate wise, but they will now have graduate students and athletes and juniors and seniors back on campus in a week. Classes will still be remote though. They're not planning on having them in person, but they were feeling pretty bad about seniors not being on campus for their last quarter of their academic career. And they let the juniors come back also. Wow, that's fantastic. And Christopher, what are the courses that you've been teaching over the last few years at Stanford? So this will be the 19th consecutive year that I've taught human nutrition, which is basically proteins, carbs, fats, vitamins, and minerals. So that's just a pretty basic nutrition class. But 10, gosh, maybe 15 years ago now, I expanded that. I started teaching a class called Food and Society. And later, I'd love to go into the reasons why I started teaching it. But this is a largely discussion-based class. My other nutrition, my human nutrition class is all lectures, a lot of slides, very didactic. Food and society, we decided a, a pediatrician colleague of mine, Tom Robinson, and I thought, wow, what if we stop talking about health so much? We're having a hard time motivating people to change their food behaviors simply on health. And there's so many things out there. There's 
animal rights and welfare, there's global changing, there's human labor abuses, there's social justice. What if we just taught a class and let the students run with it? We'll get Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma. We'll get Marion Nestle's Food Politics. We'll get Eric Schlosser's Fast Food Nation. And we'll read popular stuff and have them wrestle over issues. And Kristen, it was, it was career changing for me to hear these students talk about classes, uh, these topics in these kinds of classes where, um, a uh, uh, note to my past, I was a philosophy major undergrad, and this was like going back to philosophy. There were no correct answers. We were really wrestling with what is the best way to think of animal rights and welfare and the connections with food and global warming. And as fun as that was for me, it wasn't necessarily solution-oriented. It was really talking about issues that were relevant to personal values of the students. And so really the last class that I teach is a little more recent called Healthy and Sustainable Food Systems, where I am super pleased to say you have been a guest speaker multiple times because I decided to take, as you suggested, the institutional level focus, thinking, God, if we're going to change things in the U.S., we're probably going to have to change the food we grow. And if I go change my order at the grocery store, that's not going to change agriculture. But, oh, my God, what if Google and Stanford and Stanford Hospital, and work sites all over, and hospitals all over, and universities all over started ordering different kinds of foods. And they order for thousands and thousands, sometimes tens of thousands at a time. Oh my God, you might be able to change agriculture if you change some of that demand. And so for the last mm, five or six years, I've taught this spin-off of the Food and Society class where I have speakers like you when you were back at Google, and I have uh, residential dining enterprises folks from Stanford Dining Come Talk, Stanford Hospital, I have somebody from our local food bank, I have a food service director from the Nevada Unified School District locally, and they were all game changer people. They were already making some of these fabulous changes in what they were ordering. And so I have the students wrestle with change at sort of this institutional level, And I have to say, you wouldn't have seen this having guest lectured in the middle of the quarters for my classes. But when they come in, they think, oh, we're going to talk about this hypothetical stuff that could never happen and it'll be a fun intellectual exercise. And they come in and hear you talk. And the food service director and the Stanford Dining and the hospital folks say, oh my God, there's people out there making changes. And they are really motivated by that. So sort of this trifecta of classes where I do proteins, carbs, fats, and then I do more philosophical, philosophical stuff. And then I talk about actual food systems at the level of those institutional food settings. Wow, it really floats my boat as an educator. It's really a blast working with Stanford students on those kinds of issues. Thank you again for your fabulous participation in some of those. Well, it was such a such an honor to come. I really enjoyed uh, getting to getting to chat with your students. It was really a treat for me. So thanks for having me. So among all those interesting issues, those environmental and social issues, um, many of which you mentioned earlier, you know, are there any that resonate more than others with your students? And has this changed noticeably over the years in terms of what is the hot button topic of the moment for them? Yeah, that's a great question. And when I started teaching this class, I have to selfishly say, I wasn't just trying to educate students. I was trying to get some grant money 
And we had submitted a proposal to the NIH to try uh, social engagement and some other methods, uh, and we didn't have any data on it. So we actually taught the class and published a paper on how engaging it was. And at the end of the first year of teaching it, I wanted to get after just exactly what you said. We had presented a lot of topics. And I said, you know, this was so fun. I'm going to publish a paper on this, but I think I'll actually keep teaching the class. And it would really help me to know what were the key topics that you found the most engaging. And I sort of thought it would be, there would be a little more agreement. And what stunned me, Kristen, was how, for example, the first student that I asked said, oh, tears in my eyes. I didn't know about the animal rights and welfare stuff. And now I do. I've gone vegetarian. The very next student said, you know, I grew up on a ranching family and we never treated our animals poorly. So I don't agree with that at all. But I really got struck by the climate change and global warming things about animal agriculture. And so I'm really much more selective about the way I do that right now. And the kid next to them said, oh, my God, I, I grew up in a Republican household. We really think climate change is a hoax. And so I don't believe the global, global climate change stuff. I was more interested in some of the economics of fast food restaurant franchises getting small business loans. And so even though McDonald's or Wendy's might open up a whole bunch of places and some of them go under, the small franchise owners get small business loans because they're not big at McDon like McDonald's. They're just small business people. And some of those small business loans don't get paid back. And that's economically irresponsible. And so I'm upset with the whole way that fast food works with franchise owners. And I've boycotted fast food. I thought, oh my God, this is bizarre. There isn't like one topic that resonates with everyone. I need to have this portfolio of topics. But I I will say that the three that resonate the most are the ones I already mentioned. Animal rights and welfare, global warming and climate change, and human labor abuses when you start to talk about slaughterhouse workers and agricultural workers in the fields or fast food restaurant workers who get paid low wages. I've been looking sort of for another take on that. And if anything, the shift that I've seen in the last few years is I'll be trying to talk about the environment and the students will say, yeah, but what about the social justice? We're getting there. I promise. That's in another lecture. No, 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 no. We want to address the social justice issue right now. And so the shift that I've seen has been that one. And what are your smackdowns? My, <laughs> so smackdowns are some things that I've decided to do in the human nutrition class where the, the content is a little dry. Proteins, carbs, fats, vitamins, minerals, metabolism. And so I would take some time in each class to say, okay, so let's talk about coffee versus tea. Which one is better? Smackdown time. And I'd say, so who, you know, who thinks coffee is better than tea? And hands would go up and I would say, okay, but what was the context there? Were you talking health? Because if you're talking health, let's talk about the chemicals that are in tea versus the chemicals that are in coffee. <gasps> Coffee's got caffeine. Tea's got these polyphenols. Which one would be better? <gasps> okay, now wait, were you talking boba tea full of sugar and tapioca pearls versus in a beautifully pulled Italian espresso? I think the coffee's better. Or were you talking mocha frappa crappuccino from a coffee house versus an elegant Asian green tea? Oh my God, I think the green tea was better. But wait, were we talking environment? 
Are we talking about um, carbon footprint of where they're growing the coffee beans and the tea leaves? Were we talking human labor issues? And so I would dive into these, each of these issues and kind of end up with an it depends conclusion. So instead of just saying, hey, students, raise your hands. Is coffee or tea better? Is it for staying awake at night? Is it for your health? Is it for human labor? Is it for carbon footprint? And so my smackdowns would walk through the different domains and say, you know, I can frame it in a way that coffee is better than tea or tea is better than coffee. And I can do that with a lot of different topics. And so I would offer some of those throughout the course on dairy versus alt milk, animal protein versus plant protein, eggs, yes or no, those types of things. And the students really liked the smackdowns because it made it more practical beyond metabolism. And what role do chefs play in this, you know, quest for offering more environmentally sustainable and socially just food offerings? Oh, so that has been a huge epiphany for me after all these years. And I fortunately got to be involved through you and the Google Food Lab and the Culinary Institute of America in hanging out with chefs starting about 10 years ago. And if you don't mind, I'll backtrack just a little because I got invited to be part of the initiation of something called the Menus of Change, which was started by the Culinary Institute of America and the Harvard School of Public Health. And about 10 years ago, they were trying to respond with a frustration that chefs were having of being very reactive. Um, butter, yes. Butter, no. Margarine, yes. Margarine, no. Butter is back. Oh, my God. Today, it's paleo. Tomorrow, it's gluten-free. Crap, the clients and the patrons want something else. I'm going to have to have a new menu. I'm going to have to buy new equipment to cook and prepare this different stuff. Oh, they dropped it. That's a fad diet, and it's gone. Now, i got to buy more new equipment, have another new menu, and... They wanted to get ahead of this and be more proactive instead of reactive. And so through the work of leaders like Greg Drescher at the CIA and Walter Willett at Harvard, they said, oh, let's have a science board to come up with some principles in nutrition that really aren't fad-like. They just won't change. Let's get a business board that says, okay, places that make food have to make money. So let's come up with something that will make money. And let's have a chef board saying, you know, in terms of food and nutrition and what would make money, we can make things taste great. We, that is our craft. We can make almost anything taste great. So let's pool these three teams, scientists and business folks and chefs, and come up with the principles of the menus of change. And they generated these 24 principles, 12 were nutritional and 12 were more operational. But the whole idea was that this would all be this trifecta of Fabulous things that taste great and are healthy and are low carbon footprint, environmentally sustainable. And at these meetings that I would have with you and some of the folks at the Google Food Lab and at the Menus of Change events, and they have many of them at the Culinary Institute of America, the food is amazing. And I have a favorite phrase from Greg Drescher. He came up with this while all of this was developing, the unapologetic deliciousness of food. And let me unpack that just for a minute, because I feel like as a health professional, for decades, I contributed to apologizing and say, oh, I know you want these cookies and these other things and this meat and this dripping sauce thing, but um, I have some fiber-rich, antioxidant-rich cardboard for you. <laughs> and 
I know it doesn't taste very good and it doesn't look very good and it's not what you want. And my face would scrunch up apologetically. I'd say, I know this doesn't seem fair that I'm asking you to eat this instead of that. But I swear to God, I have a PhD in nutrition science and I'm a professor at Stanford and this is good for you. I'm, I'm sorry to say it's good. And Greg Drescher said, stop apologizing. Why don't you say, we have some food for you, this global fusion of flavors. We have this, you know, elegant heritage rice with these beautiful lentils on top and some seared vegetables and Moroccan spices. And so we've got sort of a plant forward dish for you. Could have meat or not, but if it's going to have meat, it's going to have small strips of beef or chicken or fish, or the meat could be a condiment or a side dish. We're going to go put plants at the center, but it's going to be unapologetically delicious. And so stopped apologizing and realizing, oh my God, so many of my efforts backfired over the last three decades because I wasn't really putting taste first. And I feel like when, when you empower the, the Stanford dining chefs and the Stanford hospital chefs and the Google chefs and the, the other worksite chefs, they can be your partner in this whole endeavor, which is really fun and tasty. I love it. In, in addition to your teaching and your research, which we're going to dive into more in just a minute, uh, I know, Christopher, that you're on the last chapter of writing a book. Uh, what is your book about? Oh, yes, it is. Uh, I really hope it's almost at an end. It, uh, it's really hard to write a book and uh, you keep procrastinating. The tentative title is It Depends. And it's really totally based on those smackdowns that I was doing in class where I would get this very positive feedback like, okay, we liked understanding the metabolism. We liked this practical stuff, but oh, those smackdowns were fun, getting that different perspective. And so I have seven chapters. I'm on the last one right now, which is dairy milk versus plant-based milk. But I also have animal protein versus plant protein, coffee versus tea, sugar versus sugar substitutes, eggs. And in each one, I'm having fun proceeding along a structure that I described earlier where I say, okay, if you really wanted to know why it might be healthy or bad for you, here are the chemical components and here's how you absorb them, digest them, here's where they go in your body. And this is why there's a, there's a physiological explanation of why they could be good or bad for you. Okay, now next, here's how they're grown. And some people grow them better than others. And here's the worst way to grow them with the biggest negative impact on climate change. And here's a better way that you could grow them. Uh, and then I go into animal rights and welfare, if it happens to be dairy or protein or something like that. And I, I talk about that aspect. And then I talk about preferences and pleasure, and I include some joy and pleasure in there. And if it's sometimes it's a little policy-oriented, so I have a chapter on genetically modified organisms and organic where I sort of dispel some of the myths about really what's behind that and what some of the labels mean. And so as I go through that whole thing, I start out each chapter and I say, Here, here's a pretty basic question that I get in my class all the time. Should I buy GMO? Is organic worth it? Should I switch to plant-based milk? Can I get enough amino acids from protein, uh, pl uh, plant protein? And then I go through the chapter and I say, those are pretty common questions, and I understand why you asked them, but they were not answerable questions. They aren't answerable until you put them in the context of telling me, is your priority your health? 
or are you an eco-warrior? Are you an animal lover? And you might be a little of all of those, and how would you rank them? Are you more interested in health than the environment or vice versa? How important is the animal rights and welfare? And so as I walk through the whole thing, I get to the end and I say, it's not really one or two questions. There's eight or 10 questions. And if you frame them more specifically, I would be able to help you answer them. But by the time you read my book, you won't have to ask me anymore. You'll remember that in order to answer that question, if you go through the different domains, you can answer for yourself because you're the only one who knows how you prioritize those different values. And there's a lot of internal values that align with the foods that we eat. And I just want to make the readers aware of that and hopefully empower them so nutrition doesn't seem so confusing. I really feel like the reason we get some whiplash and back and forth in nutrition issues is because people are coming from different angles. So another sort of underlying premise of the book is, is this thing good or bad for me? The answer is usually yes and no, not yes or no. Yes in this context, but it's no in another context. I'd love to uh, dive into the highlights of a few of your recent research studies. Um, first, um, I'd love to, to take a look at your study about proteins that said in 2018, Americans ate more meat from livestock sources per person than any other country in the world. And specifically, the stat was 200 pounds per person per year as an estimate from 2015 to 2017. And to unpack that a little bit, for me, it's hard to visualize 200 pounds of animal proteins. So, so with a little bit of napkin math, um, 200 pounds is basically the equivalent of a quarter pounder for breakfast, lunch, and dinner Monday through Friday of a seven-day week. So, on a daily basis, Christopher, how much protein does the average adult actually need per day? They need so much less than they get from all that meat. <clears throat> and so to, I got to tell you how they figured that out a long time ago. So a long time ago, they got a bunch of people to be housed in a unit, basically a jail, and they lowered their protein to zero. And then they added a little protein back and back and back. And they collected all the things that left the human body, which is a little gross. So we probably don't want to get into it. And they figured out when they were in protein balance. So the amount that they were eating matched the amount that they were losing. And that was, was your protein requirement to replace your losses each day. Uh, and when they made the recommended daily allowances, they had a normal distribution. Some people needed less, some people needed more, and there was an average. They came up with an average estimated requirement for human beings. And it was, they have a number for it, and it's related to how much you weigh. It was 0.66 grams per kilogram body weight. Sorry that it's kilograms for those of us in the U.S., but uh, from a global perspective, they used kilograms. And then they said, you know, if everybody got the average, then half the people would be deficient by definition, according to a normal bell curve of distribution of needs. So I'll tell you what, we'll actually recommend to the American public that they have two standard deviations higher than the estimated average requirement. And so let's make it 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. And so if you're thinking of somebody who's in the range of 150 to 175 pounds, that's about 50 grams of protein in that range. When we looked at that and we, we explained how they came in this paper that we wrote, we explained how they came up with that. We then looked for some other data sources of how much people eat in the U.S. And part of it was from the USDA, 
And that's what you were just quoting. We actually have some global FAO, Food and Agricultural Organization numbers, and we have some USDA numbers. And when you put all that meat together, it's about 90 to 100 grams of protein a day. And I have to say these are estimates because when you look at the USDA data, that's all the food that we grow and import and export, uh, adding and subtracting for that. And there's a waste factor. We don't uh, we know sadly that Americans waste a lot of food. So you have to sort of take the USDA food accounting of how much we produce minus waste. There's another angle at it. We actually have a, a van that drives around the U.S. all the time asking people about their health. And part of it is to collect dietary data. And so we actually have that kind of data about how much people eat. And we know from all our work in this area that people underreport what they eat when you ask them. I think they leave out some of the things they're more embarrassed about. So you can take that and come out with how much protein they eat per day, but you kind of have to add to it, acknowledging that they underreported. When you do those, when you put the USDA and what's called the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey data together, Kristen, you come up with about 90 to 100 grams of protein a day. The recommended daily allowance is 50 grams, roughly, per day, that has a safety buffer on it. That was designed to be two standard deviations higher than the estimated average requirement, which is more like 40 grams per day. So we had fun putting all those numbers together in a paper and then sharing some global data that shows this is how much beef, pork, chicken, fish, etc. the world eats. And it is staggering how the U.S., Maybe Brazil, maybe a little bit of Canada is so much higher than the rest of the world. It's really obscene when you see these graphics about how much meat that we eat. So those are some of the numbers that we put together to say, all right, you really don't need that much protein. You're eating a lot and you're eating a lot of meat. In your paper, you note a couple of special groups, one athletes and two folks over 70 who might need slightly more than that 40 grams of protein per day. About how much more? Because I know that so many athletes, especially those who are lifting weight, are very preoccupied with how much protein they get. Uh, can you share what actually is uh, needed per day? Yep. They are going to need some more, but it's really... They shouldn't even think about it for a minute because those numbers, that 40 or 50 grams a day, that's for the average American that's eating maybe 2,000, 2,500 calories a day. When I talk to athletes, they are eating four, five, sometimes 6,000 calories a day. So the ones who are really seriously in training, um, I actually had for a teaching assistant, uh, a Rose Bowl playing Stanford football player who was my teaching assistant. And he did some of our diet assessment exercises. And he was eating 280 grams of protein a day and 5,000 calories while he was in training. Okay, so here's the idea. You might need 40 grams or 50 to just maintain. If you want to be an athlete and put on muscle, you need more than that. I, I have a quick, quick math experiment. Let's see if, the, if I can get this past you. Would it be ambitious, Kristen, to gain 22 pounds of muscle in one year. Just muscle. 22 pounds of muscle. Does that sound pretty ambitious? Well, I'm sure for a football player, that's probably small potatoes. But for me, that, that would be a lot. 
Okay. I still think for a football player, 22 pounds of muscle would be ambitious. So that's 10 kilograms. And 70% of muscle is actually water. And so if you put on 22 pounds or 10 kilograms, three kilograms would be protein and seven kilograms would be water associated with the protein. So three kilograms is 3,000 grams. And so if you take that 3,000 grams and divide by 365 days, that's, that's about 10 grams per day. That, that's not 10 grams a day on top of what you already eat. That was 10 grams a day on what you would need to maintain the level of protein that the average American needs. So if that was 40 or 50 grams a day, then you need 50 or 60. I will say that if you are working out really hard, you're actually breaking down some muscle and you would have to replace some of the muscle that you're breaking down. But I have a, a friend who's a recreational power lifter. He just bench presses 400 pounds for fun. And he said, yeah, it's probably more like 15 grams a day that you need extra. But when I go back to my teaching assistant football playing colleague who is getting 280 grams of protein a day. So Kristen, the funny thing is fat. We have sort of an, an endless capacity to store any extra fat we eat. Carbohydrate, just a little capacity to store extra. We put some in our liver and some in our skeletal muscle, but there's actually no place in your body to store extra protein. If you ate more than you needed to build muscle and make all your cells and hormones and enzymes for the day, by the end of the day, it says, oh, looks like there's no need for this. And you break off a nitrogen component in amino acids that's unique to them. And what's left is a carbon skeleton that's the same as carbs and fats. And you turn all that protein into carbs and fats. And then you have to get rid of the nitrogen as ammonia. You turn it into ammonia in the liver and excrete it in the kidneys. So it just baffles me what people think the purpose of all this extra protein is. It's not like you could use it tomorrow in case you weren't getting enough. So as soon as you hit 50, 60, 70 grams of protein, the way that you build muscle when you're an athlete is you work out. If you work out, you can do it. You can't sit on a couch and just pound protein and think, oh, cool, while I'm watching TV, I'm eating this extra protein, it's going to go to my muscle. It doesn't. So the, the rate limiting factor is not the protein that you're eating. If you are working out that hard, you're going to have an appetite. That means you're going to be eating more than 2,500 calories a day. You're going to be eating three or 4,000. You'll get it easily. The other group that you were interested in was the elderly. And there are actually a number of recommendations out there. Not officially, the USDA still says 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight. But a lot of folks who work with elderly suggest more like one gram per kilogram body weight. And that's partly because older people have a hard time appetite-wise. Sometimes they have a problem with their teeth and their gums. They're not eating a very diet. Um, they're lonely. And so I, there's actually a lot of things built into that. There is a condition called sarcopenia that some of your listeners have probably heard of where there's muscle loss as you age. And as I've read that literature, it's not so much protein that's the limiting factor. It's protein and hormone changes and lifestyle and loneliness and teeth and dentature and, and things like that. It's a little complicated, but yes, a little higher for older people. Not necessarily that easy to get if they're not eating much. Uh, if they're in a, a nursing facility, they don't like the food. So there can be some challenges 
in older populations as well, and the recommended daily allowance is a little higher for them. The actual number for athletes that I've seen reported in multiple places is sort of 1.2 to 1.7 grams per kilogram body weight, which would be about double the RDA of 0.8 or 0.66 if you go to the estimated average requirement. But the funny thing is the average American gets 1.2 to 1.5 grams per kilogram per day. They're already at the elite athlete level as the American public. So I, I don't see athletes as having a challenge here. I think the whole protein thing is overblown. In your study, you include information about the environmental benefits of reducing uh, protein intake and, and or shifting the mix of protein consumed to include a larger share of plant-based protein. At a high level, why would this shift be so impactful? Yeah, and it's a, the biggest contributor is definitely beef. Uh, and after that, if you can do these life cycle analyses uh, experiments with the data that we have, and this has been done over and over again by people all over the world, you can see that mostly beef, but also other animal products just have a bigger carbon footprint in terms of emissions. The reason it's bigger for beef, beef, this is going to sound a little odd, and it's the same for dairy, it's that ruminants like beef and lamb um, have these stomachs where they churn their food around and they generate methane. And there's a, a misperception that it's cows farting that are causing this. It's actually cows burping that are, that are doing this. So they're burping up methane after they chewed and fermented their food in their four stomachs. And so with the, it, it wouldn't be an issue if there weren't so many cattle and so many concentrated animal feeding operations. And mathematically, it actually makes a difference. There's also land use issues, which is part of what's driving this. So as the, the appetite for meat increases, we're chopping down rainforests and turning that into areas for cattle to graze or to grow more corn and soy. So part of this, Kristen, is the methane they burp up. Part of it is the land use that they're clearing for grazing or for growing livestock feed. Grazing would actually be better. Cows um, really aren't meant to consume corn. They're meant to consume grass. And they actually kind of makes them sick to be consuming the corn and the soy. That brings up antibiotic issues. So yeah, the main uh, environmental impact is the greenhouse gases from the methane and the land use. And so in our paper, what we did is we said, all right, given how much extra protein people are eating, there would be plenty of room just to try modeling this idea. What if we cut back 25% of the protein that we now eat because we eat so much more than we need? That would still be well above the recommended daily allowance. And what if we shifted 25% of the protein sources from animal to plant sources? Because plant sources have a lower uh, environmental impact. And the issue comes up of, oh, wait, do the plant proteins have all the right amino acids? And in our paper, we go into great detail to say, you know, they're not perfect, but they are proportionally much closer than the average person thinks to high-quality protein. And in our paper, we didn't go all the way there. We just said, okay, 25% less protein. So go from maybe 90 or 100 grams to 67 or 70 grams of protein a day. The typical American eats something like 85% animal protein and 15% protein. So don't go vegan. Just switch 25% there and go to 60% animal protein 
and 40% plant protein. And when we did that, we checked out the greenhouse gases and the, the drop from agricultural contributions to greenhouse gases was a 40% drop from that 25-25 shift. And the impact on water usage, which was the other metric that we looked at, was it was a 10% reduction in agricultural water use, which was 3 trillion gallons of water. So we had fun in the paper saying, this is how much you need. It's less than you think. Here's how much you eat. It's more than you think. Here's what would happen if you lowered it by 25 and shifted by 25. You have a big savings in greenhouse gas climate change impact, and you'd have a substantial water savings. And you could do more than that. We just wanted to model the 25-25 shift. And what do you think now in 2021 is the biggest barrier to convincing people, especially in the U.S. where our uh, animal protein consumption is so high? Uh, How do we convince people to make that shift? So I've actually been having great fun with the Culinary Institute of America group, which is where all of this started because they looked at the principles of the menus of change, these 24 principles, and they said, ah, you know, what, what single things could we do that hit multiple principles at once? And they came up with this idea, Kristen, that I love that's called the protein flip. And the protein flip was, okay, let's look at the standard American plate where there's meat in the center of many meals. Let's put plants at the center and let's um, flavor them with condiments or small portions of meat and we'll make them unapologetically delicious So it was this idea of having a global fusion of flavors and bowls. I really think the college students that I work with are really into these bowls where you can add the things that you want and you can personalize your dish and the the base of it can be grains and beans and things like that. So I think part of the way to make this shift is to work with these chefs who are showing that you can do this in an unapologetically delicious way. So that's one way. Another way is to start, stop being so dogmatic. I feel like the vegans and the vegetarians of the world do us a great disservice when it's sort of all or nothing. That's really quite a put off to think, okay, you have to eliminate it all to make any difference. There's some really interesting books. Uh, Mark Bittman has written VB6, Vegan Before Six, where he doesn't eat any, he doesn't eat any meat during the day and at dinner, he eats some meat. Uh, I've seen a YouTube where somebody said, I'm vegetarian for five days of the week, and on the weekends, I eat meat. So there's all kinds of flexitarian ways to approach that. So if we come at this from a taste angle, and if we come at it from a behavioral angle where there's lots of different ways to be more of a flexitarian, then I think we're opening the doors to more people doing this. And then continuing to back this up With the science, so in 2019, a group called the Eat Lancet Commission looked and said globally, oh my God, if we really have 10 billion people in 2050, we're going to be screwed. We only have this one planet. And so here's some more data on what we'll need to be viable and to have sustainable diets in 2050. I really think they've been doing a great job with coming up with better data, better ways of presenting the data talking about options and bringing up sort of comparisons from one country to the next. And then let's go back to those chefs and have them save the day and say, you know, we're not asking you to give up on flavor. This could be really fun. There's a lot of really fun, tasty food here. So I guess I'm trying to come at it from 
those kinds of angles. And I will say, personally, I think it's the institutional food that's going to save us because I really think with chefs taking the lead and ordering so much, it, it really won't happen unless U.S. agriculture changes. And I bet the farmers and ranchers will grow whatever we want to eat if, if they can make a decent living. And they deserve to make a decent living. And I don't think they do. I think our farmers and ranchers should get more money for food. All of our food service folks should get more money. Um, but if we, yeah, if we work with them on this and we can make it delicious, and if dining halls and work sites and hospitals are ordering huge pallets of different foods and we have better relationships with farmers and ranchers, uh, I think that's an important part of the solution to this shift. So if any of folks listening are thinking, gosh, I'd really love to try to shift my diet and try to um, make plant proteins a bigger percentage of my overall protein consumption and, and really uh, not eat as much animal protein, what would be some suggestions? What do you think are some go-to uh, good choices uh, in, in the plant world that they can go to, to, um, to that are really tasty and, and delicious and that people can cook at home? Yeah, absolutely. I really think you can look Indian, Mediterranean, and Latin American for lots of these dishes, right? So we have all kinds of wonderful spices that are flavoring these, but think about salads as a whole, just as a whole category. I think some people think salad, that's just lettuce. No, 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 no. There's a lot of things you can put on salad. You can make your salad a meal. My, my typical salad has carrots, red bell peppers, beans, nuts, Greek olives on it, avocados. I actually can have some, end up with some really high fat salads if I put lots of nuts and avocados and olive oil on it. And I can have a low fat salad by putting on some lemon or vinaigrette. So think outside the box salads to make those meals and think of grain-based salads and three bean salads. If you look culturally across all these groups in the world, there are a ton of different ways to make salads just incredibly versatile. Um, the other hot topic that we already talked about just for a moment was bowls. In sort of the restaurant world, this is a really hot topic where it's a grain and a bean-based bowl where you put some tempeh or tofu or, or small portions of meat on top of a global fusion-flavored bowl concept, which is really popular in dining halls and work sites right now. Stir fries are another basic thing that are super versatile, right? So throw in and, and cook up some veggies and sear them in quickly. So you got those flavors and there's some great Asian flavors that go in those stir fries. And then again, add what's in the fridge. And if you, if you need to add a little meat or animal protein, do that. But think about some tofu or tempeh. And so if you go with bowls and stir fries and salads and all the versatility that goes with those, and you think Mediterranean, Latin American, um, Middle Eastern, there's just an amazing number of fabulous flavors out there. And I suppose I'm spoiled um, living here in, in California where we grow so much fresh produce, but boy, the restaurants around me always have a plant-based option these days. The dining halls at Stanford always have a plant-based option. The work sites that I go to are making a, a stronger case for that, that it's fun, you know, bring the joy and pleasure back to food and have it be healthy and have it be environmentally sustainable. I, I'm very excited about this movement that I'm seeing happen. 
No, you also recently uh, did a study looking at um, plant-based alternative meats. And for any listeners who might not know what I'm talking about, these are uh, foods that uh, look and taste like meats, but actually are not made with animal products. And I'm just curious, what were the high-level findings um, of that study? Are there concerns about sodium, uh, for example, in some of these highly processed foods? There were. Um, so there were a lot of concerns that to make them, they were using a lot of saturated coconut fat, which is absolutely true. And it's true there was sodium in it. And so people thought, oh my God, these things are uh, processed foods with lots of saturated fat and lots of sodium. Oh my God, they might be as bad or worse as the things that you're trying to replace. And so we thought, that's interesting. I, I'm hearing these claims, but I actually know how to do that kind of study. I'll get 40 people. And I'll get them to eat two servings a day of red meat and two servings a day of these plant-based alternative meats. And we'll characterize what the nutrients are and we'll look at their weight and their blood pressure and their cholesterol, things like that. So from a high-level perspective, we actually lowered their LDL cholesterol, which usually responds to saturated fat. And that's because the amount of saturated fat and coconut oil in these plant-based burgers was higher than beans, but it was lower than a traditional burger or the traditional meats. Um, the blood pressure did not go up, which usually responds to sodium. So interestingly, these plant-based burgers do have sodium in them. I don't know if, how high I would call them, but when we looked overall, we gave them a variety of the meats and the plant-based meats. And so that included sausages and burgers and ground beef. And it turns out when people buy plain old ground beef, they usually don't eat it plain. They add sodium. They, they salt it after they get it. And when we looked at the total sodium on the two phases of the study, it was virtually identical. It was not higher in the plant-based meats. And so their blood pressure didn't change at all. There's an inflammatory marker of interest in the cardiovascular world called TMAO, trimethylamine oxide. And you make that with the microbiome in your gut if you get the precursor to it called carnitine that comes from meat and you don't with plants. And so we saw a rise in trimethylamine oxide and the meat phase versus the plant-based phase. And the meats never have fiber. Meats never have fiber. Only plants have fiber. And so the plant burgers and meats, the alternative meats have fiber, which always helps fill you up and maybe not eat so much and helps lower your cholesterol. So we also saw a very modest reduction in weight just by a couple pounds when they were on the plant-based phase versus the meat phase. So she said, yes, I've heard that there's health concerns about the saturated fat, about the sodium. I'm pretty excited about the fiber. I'm pretty excited that we won't make TMAO if we don't get the meat. So let's look at it. And sure enough, TMAO was better. LDL cholesterol was better, weight was better, and blood pressure was no different on the plant-based alternative meats uh, compared to the conventional meats. We bought really high-quality red meat. We went with a great company in San Francisco that sources grass-fed, pasture-raised meats. Um, we had almost everybody completed the study. The internal validity of the study was really high, so we were really pleased with trying to answer this practical question where I'd seen lots of claims and concerns 
about detrimental effects. And so I think we were the first to do this test head to head. I, I can't say that's for all products and for all people. It was only 40 people in, in our area, but I think it was the first study of this kind. And it was all benefits and no harms from the things that we measured. So at the end of the day, from a health and environmental perspective, lentils would be the winner and then plant-based meats would be a runner-up followed by animal proteins at the bottom. Is that sort of the high level? That is totally high level. And we're actually trying to do that. We actually have a pilot study now um, with athletes. We're going to try to have them do red meat for four weeks, plant meat for four weeks, and no meat for four weeks. Because a lot of the comments that we got were, yeah, how about lentils? Wouldn't they be better yet eating the lentils? And my my answer to that is I've been trying to get people to eat more plant foods for three decades. <laughs> and I can get some, and they don't eat that many. I'm, I'm a vegetarian myself and mostly vegan. And I actually, I'm not the target audience for these um, businesses because I don't miss burgers. And so when I'm trying to talk to people who love burgers and say eat lentils, their reaction is often, nope not really willing to make that switch. And the interesting thing of these new companies, Kristen, is they were designed targeting the meat eaters. That's why the coconut saturated fat is there. That's why the sodium's there. They want them to sort of look, taste, smell, feel. They want them to sizzle the same way. They want the smells to be the same way. They want the aftertaste to be the same way. And they've accomplished it. They're pretty close. And so when I talk to people who have been willing to make the shift, it's because all the sensory things are so similar. And that's not true of lentils. It just wouldn't, they'd know they were eating lentils. So if I could get everybody to eat more lentils, that'd be fantastic. I can't. So this seems like a good complementary approach to consider some of the plant-based alternatives, which would kind of be the same for dairy and plant-based milks. I'd rather they eat the soybeans. I'd rather they eat the almonds or the cashews. But there's an almond milk, a cashew milk, an oat milk. I'd rather have them eat the oats. But they're allowing people to make the shift. So I'm very intrigued by these alternative plant-based approaches, even though they are, yes, processed. And some of them are, yes, ultra-processed, depending on what your criteria are. Interesting new option for people, and a lot of people are trying them. It's fascinating. So, Christopher, when you were a teenager and a philosophy major as an undergrad, were you as interested in food and specifically the social environmental issues that you're so passionate about today? Were you interested in those at that time? Not at all. I grew up in New England. I grew up standard American. Mom, what's for dinner? Mom always cooked. It was chicken or pork chops or steak. Uh, grew up eating tons of fast food uh, and yeah, that was my whole background. And all changed when uh, I had a girlfriend who was a vegetarian who dumped me. And at 23, I tried to get her back. And she said, nope, still don't like you anymore. And I said, ah, this whole vegetarian thing just gets you back for nothing. Oh, oh, wait, actually, this vegetarian thing is kind of interesting. Wow, it's, it's not as hard as I thought. And wow, as I'm sort of looking into this, I'm, I'm starting to meet different people. And I'm liking the values that they have, huh, I think I'll kind of align myself with this, myself with this more plant-based approach. So, nope, not, I didn't eat anything like this till I was 23. Uh, and I've since had four kids, and they're all boys. And 
Uh, two of them have never had any meat, the two older ones. And the two younger ones, uh, every once in a while, we, we loosen up a little bit and they'll order chicken when we go out or they'll go to a friend's house and have some meat. But pretty much I got four plant-based boys. Uh, one's 26 and the other one's 30. They're, they're intelligent. They're athletic. They're normal size. They have great health. Yep, that's my, my background. And you do most of the cooking in your family, correct? I do. Yes. My wife's a pretty good cook. Melissa's a good cook. She's a political scientist. And uh, we're both on Zoom and teaching and doing things all day long. And I think she prefers it when I cook. And so, yep, I'm the, the main cook at our house. Do you plan meals, use recipes, follow any kind of process, or do you wing it? Yeah, we have a lot of cookbooks. And so sort of my... Typical strategy is I, for 10 years straight, we've had a fabulous farmer's market just two miles from our house. And so I'll plan one or two. I'll get a recipe and I'll make sure I have all the right things. Um, then we have, if it's in a rush and, and we're both professors and we have busy lives. So some really easy classic things we have, like I make uh, enhanced pasta sauce. So I'll get uh, some onions and garlic out and throw in some bell peppers and I'll see whatever their veggies are in their fridge. And then I'll dump a whole thing of tomato sauce on top of that that I got from the store. So I got this jarred tomato sauce, but we call it daddy's enhanced tomato sauce. And so we'll just cook up some pasta and put this very much more vegetable dense uh, pasta together. And so I made tempeh bacon the other day because we have a little liquid smoke at our house, uh, and very often we'll, we'll just make a salad or a grain salad. One of my favorites is uh, a wheat berry salad that uh, is actually a huge favorite of students when I bring this into class sometimes. So wheat berries is the base, but it's got some onions and bell peppers and carrots and pecans, some pomegranate seeds, and so it's got some savory and some sweet, and some, it's got some dried fruit in there for sweet. Um, I have a, fa- a lot of soups, actually. We make a lot of soups at our house, Kristen. And so, and some of those, actually, my wife just found this fabulous thing, sort of this um, um, black chef woman. It's all women-oriented, and it's all uh, a black community that makes these fabulous packaged soups things where the lentils and the spices and the beans are there, and you just add a couple ingredients. And so we're big on making a big pot of soup when you're in a rush. So I plan a couple of week, a couple of meals out per week. And then I have some quick go-tos uh, that are fairly rapid. It's like, wait, we forgot to plan today and we need to eat soon. So as we wrap up today, I just have a couple more questions. Um, Christopher, what's one silver lining for you uh, of the pandemic uh, professionally and personally? Uh, okay. So silver lining is being at home with the family. Uh, it's amazing how much my wife and I as professors were, would both juggle our calendars about who's leaving when. And, oh, my God, we're both flying out of town the same day. Who's taking care of the kids? And now we just step aside and we do Zoom. So really great to be with the family. We're much more regular family dinners. So definitely we always have family dinner, whereas before somebody was traveling. Uh, cooking more. It is easier to cook. Like I'm never racing home from work at the end of the day and getting home two minutes before dinner. Uh, I'm using that travel time, which is usually 20, 30 minutes for me to to put that extra time into cooking 
that family dinner that we have. So those would be two of my biggies. That's fantastic. And my last question today, Christopher, is uh, will you please recommend three book titles for listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, Mark Bittman just came out with a brand new book called Animal Vegetable Junk. Uh, It's sort of built on uh, a book by, uh, oh gosh, Kingsolver. I'm blanking on the name right now. Barbara Kingsolver, is that it? Yeah, she wrote Animal Vegetable Miracle at least a decade ago, which is also a fabulous read. So it must be a play on that. But Animal Vegetable Junk, uh, Mark Bittman ties a lot of these different issues together that we've been talking about today. And another person who's done that is Sophie Egan, who has written a book called Devoured. And it is another fabulous look at trying to tie all the loose ends together from the discussion that we've been having today of animal rights and welfare and human labor and taste and, and all the things that food touches on. It kind of gets at a, a favorite quote I have from John Muir who says, you know, be careful about tugging on something. And I'm thinking a vegetable growing in the earth. If you tug on it too hard, you'll find it's connected to everything. And so that is what I find with food as you think about all the food related issues. And I think both Sophie and Mark Bittman have hit on that in those two books. And then The third book I'll recommend is my new interest that we didn't get to talk about today in the microbiome. So I have a fabulous new colleague named Justin Sonnenberg and he and his wife, Erica Sonnenberg, are together microbiologists that have been working with mice in their uh, microbiological studies for decades. And they, they realized, God, everything that we're doing suggests that this is sort of fiber-related and fermented food-related. These are the things that feed the microbiome or enhance the microbiome. We should do this in humans. And so we've now been doing human studies, collecting, ooh, icky poop, and I get them folks to eat differently. And um, the participants donate their stool samples, and Justin and Erica analyze it. And as they've done this, they've written a book called The Good Gut, And so the good gut is the Sonnenberg's exploration of the human microbiome, which I think a lot of people find interesting but confusing. And they have really helped to make it more accessible and understandable and exciting. So the last would be my recommendation for the good gut. Awesome. Well, those are great. We will definitely include all of those in the show notes, as well as all the other resources we've mentioned today. And listeners can find the show notes at northstarsleepschool.com forward slash podcast. Christopher, thank you so much for taking time today. It's been such a treat to see you and to chat with you. And uh, I really appreciate it, especially considering that this is your spring break. So thank you so much for your time today. These are all favorite topics of mine, and you're one of my favorite people, so it was great putting them all together. Thanks, Kristen. Oh, I appreciate that, and I appreciate all the listeners out there uh, taking the time to subscribe to the podcast and to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and to tell a friend uh, if you like this episode. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the North Star Unplugged Podcast. The audio version can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you like North Star Unplugged, please subscribe and leave a review on one of those channels. Finally, all prior episodes are also on the North Star Sleep School website 
at northstarsleepschool.com, which offers an e-newsletter you can sign up for.